Welcome to the third Geneva Visiting Artist and Lecture Series event of the semester. We usually don't have this many in September, but uh, we've had some exciting things going on already. Uh, we do have a full slate of programming this year, and we're excited about the range of speakers that are uh, available to our campus this semester. So I'd invite you to go on our website. If you just go to the Geneva website, and in the search box, you type uh, GVALS, or Geneva Visiting Artists and Lecture Series, that'll pop right up for you. Uh, today's event is held in honor of Constitution Day and in recognition of Constitution Day. On September 17, 1787, the delegates of the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia for the last time to sign a document that they had created. The original document, which was comprised of about 4,500 words, serves as the foundation for our government and is the oldest of any national constitution in existence. It's the Constitution that binds us, a very diverse people, together as a nation. Our Constitution places the, the government, the power of the government, in the hands of the people. It limits the power of the government and establishes a system of checks and balances. And enshrined in our Constitution is the principle that government exists to protect the rights of all citizens and asserts that the government has no legitimate power to deprive any citizen or class of citizens of their rights without due process of law. It's in the Constitution that we find what has become known as the Establishment Clause, the guarantee that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, a principle that Geneva College prizes. So this morning, it's my pleasure to welcome Catherine Kimball Mizell to Geneva College for the 2019 Constitution Day Lecture. Ms. Mizell is a 2009 graduate of Covenant College, a sister CCCU institution that's actually very similar to Geneva College. Uh, it's located in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and there she earned her BA in economics and served as student body president. Following graduation, she returned to her home state of Florida to attend law school at the University of Florida, where she graduated as a valedictorian of her law school class. From there, she clerked on the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida for Judge James Moody, and on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit for Judge William Pryor. After clerking, Ms. Mizell joined the U.S. Department of Justice, where she spent the next several years prosecuting white-collar offenses as a trial attorney in the tax division, which she told me last night was actually pretty exciting. Uh, she also served as a special assistant U.S. attorney at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Virginia, where she prosecuted the largest human trafficking case in that district's history. In her last year at the Department of Justice, she served as counsel to the Associate Attorney General, where she worked on regulatory reform matters, led the department's initiative to defend, defend free speech on college campuses, served on the Religious Liberty Working Group, and helped oversee the tax division. Ms. Mizell then left the department to serve as one of Judge Gregory Castus's first law clerks upon his confirmation to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. She most recently completed a year-long clerkship for Associate Justice Clarence Thomas on the U.S. Supreme Court. In January, Ms. Mizell and Justice Thomas will co-teach a condensed law school course on the religion clauses of the First Amendment at the University of Florida. So please join me in welcoming Catherine Kimball Mizell to Geneva College. Uh, 
Good morning, um, and thank you for that very uh, warm and kind introduction. Um, I am delighted to join you today to participate in Geneva's celebration of Constitution Day. Um, it's truly wonderful to know that Christian institutions like Geneva commemorate the formation of our republic. Um, I believe ours is truly a unique government, both from a modern day and historical perspective. Um, after about a decade um, of study in law school and as a lawyer, I have come to believe that our Constitution truly provides the best framework for protecting liberty. Um, and um, as a result, I love being an American citizen, not just because I was born here, um, but I truly believe it provides the most potential for human flourishing in a broken world. So when I was invited to speak here today, I struggled a little bit with what topic to, to select. Um, I had not committed to teach this class at the University of Florida about religious liberty, so that wasn't on my radar quite yet. Um, and there are many constitutional provisions that are well deserving of a Constitution Day lecture. For example, I wholeheartedly agree with the late Justice Antonin Scalia's view that the structural protections found in the Constitution, namely the separation of powers between the different branches of the federal government, and the delineation of power between the federal government and the states, uh, referred to as federalism, are the true bulwarks of citizens' liberty. No amount of enumerated individual rights can outweigh those two fundamental structural protections. Um, indeed, without these protections, governments can and will quickly centralize and aggrandize its power to the detriment of its citizens' liberty. Just look at North Korea's constitution, which lacks these important structural protections, but includes a multitude of individual rights, such as the right to free speech, freedom of religious beliefs, the right to work, the right to relaxation, um, free medical care, free education. It even includes the freedom to reside in and travel to any place, if you believe that. Um, this example simply proves that Justice Scalia was absolutely correct. Structure is everything. But once we understand the structural foundation designed to keep the federal government from encroaching beyond its um, delegated powers, we can then explore what individual rights the Constitution protects. And this is where I'd like to focus today. And in particular, I wanted to focus for this audience on what I think are the critical rights for college students to understand. I hope to persuade you that the First Amendment contains some of the most important provisions guaranteeing our liberty and our very existence as free men and women. This is because freedom cannot exist when truth is silenced. This is the crux of my speech, and this is the message I hope I leave with you today. Coincidentally, um, my thesis dovetails nicely into the goal of Denise's vi visiting lecture series, which I looked online, um, that says it's designed to help students uh, become able to evaluate all knowledge critically, to gain from that which is true, and discard error. In other words, Geneva is seeking to equip you to discern truth. As Christ told us, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the truth will set us free. Thus, as followers of Christ, we must be truth seekers in our society. And the First Amendment's provisions are the legal protections enabling each of you to be exactly that, whether at church, in the classroom, or on social media. So let's start with the text of the First Amendment. It states, Congress shall make no law establishing, um, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. We can begin by collecting these um, uh, provisions into two primary groups, religious liberty and free speech. First, under the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, religious liberty protections are found in the Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause. 
At its heart, the Establishment Clause prohibits the federal government from adopting an official religion and then coercing its citizens to support it. As John Adams succinctly expressed it, nothing is more dreaded than the national government meddling with religion. However, the Supreme Court has struggled to define and apply a unified legal test to that clause. At times, as it had favored a very strict separationist view between the government and religion. This view has become known as the Lemon Test, based on the, name bearing, the case name bearing that um, title. Under it, courts are supposed to ask whether the government had a secular purpose, whether it has an effect of advancing religion, and whether it requires excessive entanglement with religion. Setting aside Lemon's fidelity to the Constitution as original matter, and there's good reason to doubt that, the court has recognized Lemon's significant failings as a practical matter. It thus has declined to apply it in a variety of circumstances. As a result, the court has permitted historical religious symbols to remain on public property. Just this past year, it ruled that a Latin cross in memory of a World War I veterans in Maryland could stand. It's also allowed legislative sessions to continue to be opened with prayer. What is clear from all of this is that the court has been unable to settle on a coherent establishment clause test. Given this jurisprudential muddle, I think the much clearer provision um, for granting individual liberty of religious freedom is in the free exercise clause. From a historical perspective, this provision is very easy to understand. Many colonists left England in pursuit of religious freedom, particularly Protestant dissidents from the Anglican Church, such as Baptists, Puritans, and Presbyterians. Under the laws of England, non-Anglican Protestants had to worship under certain conditions, could be fined and imprisoned for denying official church doctrine, and were excluded from public office, along with other religious minorities like Jews and Catholics. In fact, before the Bill of Rights was ratified, the only religious liberty protection in the Constitution was found in Article 6, which stated that no religious test shall ever be required as qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Historical anecdotes and statements from our founding fathers make it clear that the founding generation was keenly aware of religious orthodoxy becoming a kind of civil service litmus test, and thus they sought to disable the newly created federal government from interfering with its citizens' ability to worship and believe how they saw fit without discrimination. As James Madison stated in 1785, the religion then of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man, and it is the right of every man to exercise it as these may dictate. In fact, Madison went even further, writing in his famous Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments, that one's duty to the universal sovereign is precedent, both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. Importantly, the founders did not foresee the First Amendment's provisions as creating a conflict between their civil duties and religious ones, but as a marker that they could maintain their duty to state without impinging the freedom to follow their religious convictions. In exploring the contours of the Free Exercise Clause, there are several aspects that are clear under the Supreme Court's jurisprudence and are supported as an original matter. The first, the freedom to hold religious beliefs and opinions is absolute. The government cannot punish people for believing certain doctrines or require anyone to profess belief in a particular doctrine. Relatedly, the government cannot impose special disabilities, such as exclusion from civil government service based on a religious status or belief nor can it punish the expression of religious doctrines the government believes to be false. As more recent court opinions have demonstrated, this aspect of the Free Exercise Clause includes the right against exclusion from participation in a generally available public program based solely on the religious status of the participant. For example, a state cannot exclude you from running for office because you are, say, a Methodist pastor, nor could a city deny you police or ambulatory service because you are Catholic. 
The second thing that is clear is that the right of free exercise encompasses more than just a belief. As the word implies, exercise includes action. And thus the government cannot outlaw religious behavior. But herein lies the real difficulties with the scope of the clause, which has led to the crescendo of litigation about religious liberty today. This date, debate centers on a Supreme Court case called Department of um, Employment Division versus Smith. In Smith, the Supreme Court held that the Free Exercise Clause did not grant a Native American an exemption from the generally applicable drug laws, even though he used peyote as part of his religious practice. This example brings to the forefront the balance of religious liberty with public safety and welfare. Stated differently, the issue is whether religious exemptions from neutral laws of general applicability are ever constitutionally mandated under the Free Exercise Clause. Is the Free Exercise Clause um, right intended to be an absolute guarantee against all government regulation? Probably not in such stark terms, as I think we'd all agree that the right to free exercise does not include the right to murder someone under the guise that your religious beliefs required you to kill your neighbor. But how and by whom are religious practices defined? How does a court of law determine the sincerity of the religious belief? Must it be a shared doctrine of a recognized religious group? And how is the court to determine if a law is actually neutral? There is a vigorous, um, and I think interesting, academic debate centering on whether the right to free exercise of the founding included the right for exemptions so long as they did not disturb the peace, public peace. On this point, historical evidence is mixed. Many state constitutions included similar free exercise clause provisions in their own constitutions, but likewise included provisos explicitly denying free exercise of religion for practices that disturbed the public peace or were inconsistent with the peace and safety of the state. On the other hand, there is evidence that 18th century law considered every breach of law as an offense against the state. And thus, maybe those state provisos prove little. Their other um, mixed historical record includes the fact that virtually every state at the time of ratification permitted Quakers to testify or vote by affirmation instead of by oath, and exempted Mennonites and other pacifists from service in the militia. That too could be evidence of statutory exemptions being a matter of legislative grace, or proof that the founding generation viewed the exemptions as part of the very meaning of free exercise. Fortunately, for federal laws at least, Congress has passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Under that law, if an individual's free exercise right is substantially burdened by a government regulation, the government must show a compelling interest that is narrowly tailored in order to succeed against a potential challenge. Many states have likewise passed similar laws, um, and thus religious liberty rights have been restored um, to pre-Smith status in many instances. However, um, and this is important for Christians, I believe, the question of whether Smith is correctly decided is of paramount importance for future legal challenges, and I think it can safely be said to be the mo most important religious liberty question of our day. Consider this example. Would the Free Exercise Clause require an exemption for Jewish communities from a law that banned circumcision based on the health and safety of the baby? There's no dispute that circumcision is a fundamental and long-standing aspect of the Jewish faith, but such a law seems fairly neutral, at least on its face. Setting aside all these difficult questions about whether Smith is correct, the founders clearly intended to permit citizens to freely exercise their religious beliefs, whether in formal worship or convictions dictating their daily life, and to be free from discrimination from the government based solely on account of their religious beliefs. The court has been clear since at least 1947 that the government cannot hamper its citizens in the free exercise of their own religion or exclude citizens because of their faith or lack of it from receiving benefits of public welfare legislation. 
Okay, so why does it matter for college students to understand that? I think it's important to understand this religious liberty right, the very first freedom guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, um, because I think it's fundamental to the pursuit of truth. Given the persecution many of the colonists faced in England, they understood that matters of faith and religion involve first principles about the universe and one's moral conscience. These matters cannot be dictated by a government or the ever-changing sensibilities of the majority of a population because these truths do not derive from any constitution or written law or politician or culture. They come, um, they are discovered through God's word and by human reason. As part of our free will, the right of free of religious liberty is given to us as a matter of our human dignity. Our founding fathers prioritized this freedom by expressing it in positive law, the free exercise clause, and thus safeguarding religious liberty by the civil government. They did so on the belief that coercion in matters of conscience um, cause discord in society and that they impede the search for truth. Importantly, they recognized that this liberty of conscience was the, um, not an inalienable right that had been surrendered to the government. And by including it in the First Amendment, they highlighted the fact that citizens could pursue the truth about God and their moral convictions without legal, legal repercussions. This should in turn give us as Christians the greatest confidence to be witnesses for Christ in a pluralistic society that may or may not agree with our values. Which leads me to the second great protection of the First Amendment, the right of free speech. As a refresher, the remainder of the First Amendment prohibits Congress from making laws abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, the right of the people peaceably to assemble or to petition the government for redress of grievances. There is textual and historical support that these last two clauses, the right of assembly and petition for redress, were independent and distinct rights, but under the court's jurisprudence, they've essentially been subsumed into the free, or the free speech um, right, and I want to focus on that for the present. As Justice um, Scalia explained, the first axiom of the First Amendment is that as a general rule, the state has no power to ban speech on the basis of its content. Put differently, the government cannot ban speech based on its substance as opposed to its form. For example, a state may prevent you from having a parade at 2 a.m. down the main thoroughfare of your city, but it can't ban your parade because it dislikes the message you are communicating. A ban on content-based restrictions then concisely captures the free speech right in the First Amendment. Now, to be sure, the legal complexities surrounding free speech are endless, um, although there are certain historical exceptions that are widely recognized um, that don't deserve free, uh, First Amendment protection, such as torts like libel. From an originalist perspective, meaning a perspective based upon how the people voting to ratify the Constitution would have understood the words, there is little evidence, honestly, to demonstrate the precise scope of the free speech right beyond that. But regardless of its indeterminacy, the right of free speech has been clearly held by the court to apply equally to professional publishers and private citizens. It covers symbolic expression as well as verbal communication, and it extends to all topics, not just political matters. In this regard, the court's jurisprudence has aligned closely with the sentiments of the First Continental Congress, which in 1774 wrote, the importance of the freedom of the press consists, besides the advancement of truth, science, morality, and arts in general, in its diffusion of liberal sentiments on the administration of government, its ready communication of thoughts between subjects, and its consequential promotion of union among them, whereby oppressive officers are shamed or intimidated into more honorable and just modes of conducting affairs. In sum, the basic rule of free speech and free press is that the government cannot impose content-based restrictions. 
And the basic purpose is to protect liberty, because it allows for the pursuit of truth in all arenas, which in turn produces a better government and better citizenry. In the late 1700s, while arguing against the Sedition Act that had made it a crime to publish any false, scandalous, or malicious writing with intent to defame the government, James Madison said that the freedom of speech is the only effectual guardian of every other right. Why is that? Because the founders believed that human reason and vigorous and open debate would lead to truth, and truth in turn would lead to justice and right actions. Open discussion can flush out the underlying presumptions built into positions, clarify the facts upon which those positions were supported, and hone in on the truth of the matter. The citizens who ratified the Bill of Rights believed that reason and knowledge could lead to good judgment in matters of domestic and foreign policy, morality, industry, science, and so on. Similar to how universities for centuries have employed the Socratic method in academia, the right of free speech is the mode by which citizens pursue knowledge in the public square. And this ability, the ability to discern wise from foolish, effective versus unproductive, is fundamentally important in a government where the sovereignty ultimately rests in the people themselves. Robust debate is thus not only inherent in the fabric of our government, it's absolutely crucial for its success. As Thomas Jefferson explained, in a Republican nation whose citizens are to be led by reason and persuasion and not by force, the art of reasoning becomes of first importance. But how are people who are not educated on issues supposed to govern themselves? That is why the free speech right is so important. To summarize, these rights for free exercise and free speech are paramount to the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of ultimate freedom. As Frederick Douglass asserted, Liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions has ceased to exist. And in the First Amendment, we as Americans have the right of freedom of conscience and speech. Okay, given these constitutional provisions we just discussed, how does one, especially a college student, exercise them in a faithful, God-honoring manner? I suggest you can do so in several ways. First, each of you as citizens possesses free exercise and free speech rights, and it means you should exercise them. These two rights seem quite intertwined, as our religious beliefs inform our speech, and in turn, our speech cannot be separated from what we believe. All aspects of our lives, from organized prayer services to mundane chores, should themselves be acts of worship. As Thomas Aquinas thought, even the act of studying itself can be a form of prayer, and thus an exercise of your religious practice. Each of you has the ability then, daily, in studying, to engage your First Amendment rights in a God-honoring manner. And it is faithfulness, I believe, in living out the daily callings of studying, serving others in your dorm, praying, doing acts of charity, giving thanks to our Lord, that will provide a witness to the world that we are truth seekers. I'd also like to discuss, though, how to directly engage your free speech rights in a Christian manner. We hear how on many college campuses um, across the nation, speakers are shouted down if a group dislikes the message or the viewpoint of the speaker. Even when someone is not completely silenced by those that uh, disagree with them, I think we can all witness in the daily news how political opponents do not confront the merits of each other's arguments. These practices are, of course, not always constitutional violations when they do not involve government action, but they certainly flout the goals of the First Amendment. They demonstrate a refusal to engage with facts and reason, and thus should be condemned, I believe, as affronts on the pursuit of truth, the very thing that the right of free speech is intended to achieve. Indeed, they hinder our liberty because the right to speak openly your position 
however unpopular or offensive, is necessary for the pursuit of truth. For without the ability to make your case and argue your convictions, as well as the reasons underlying your view, the status quo cannot be challenged and false assumptions will never be unearthed. The entire enterprise of truth-seeking will then be stifled. Although most notably enshrined in the First Amendment, we see the same strong current of truth-seeking throughout many of our other constitutional provisions. Take, for example, the Sixth Amendment. It provides the right to confront the witnesses against a defendant at a criminal trial. It includes that because we believe cross-examination clarifies a witness's testimony. The Sixth Amendment also provides the right to an indictment that specifies the charges and the facts supporting them because we believe notice of the allegations allows for the most fair process. These safeguards protect liberty by allowing the truth to be sought. And since we believe that the truth sets us free as Christians, we want our republic to and we want our republic to survive, we must resist the modern day movement that encourages ignoring, ignoring or worse silencing our opponents. And we should do so not only because they too enjoy First Amendment protections, um, but because as Christians, we've been commanded to do unto others as they would have them do to you. Christ left no room for ambiguity on this point. We are to love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, bless those who curse us, pray for those who mistreat us. That is a difficult um, order. It is hard to tolerate opponents' views with which we fundamentally disagree. Yet, this has long been the secular edict for successfully maintaining our pluralistic society, although I think it's challenged today whether that's still true. But regardless, our command is even greater. As Christians, we are required to love our opponents, even if they mistreat us and are actively trying to undercut our own constitutional rights. Much prayer and humility is necessary to obey this command. I offer two modest thoughts on how to implement it in your everyday lives. First, we need to listen more. To dialogue effectively requires patience to engage with the substance of the arguments. Be critical listeners first, commentators second. When you read a social media post that irritates you, try to understand the underlying position. What is motivating the writer's speaker or sentiment? What assumptions are built into the premise that are not being articulated? Is there truth, even if only partial, to the argument? Second, and I think this is the most important for college students, we must have the courage to speak up more. We cannot convince others of the merits of our position if we do not articulate them. And we not only have the constitutionally protected liberty to speak and to exercise our faith, but the obligation as Christ followers to seek the truth and to share it. We cannot allow fear to hamper this calling. I'm not even primarily referring to religious matters, although that's certainly important. Our country needs more informed citizens who care about the economic, legal, environmental, political, and national security interests of today. And our entire constitutional structure is premised on sovereignty residing in the people, which means you, the people, must understand and engage with the matters of government. No American citizen is exempt from this duty. Now, of course, when we speak, we've been told to act with heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But let me be clear, that does not mean without, um, with timidity or with lack of conviction. It means without malice towards others and with a focus on the merits of their arguments. The above applies equally to how we as consumers of information and media influence the freedom of the press. In a world ravaged by the 24-7 news cycle, we must be conscientious in what we absorb. We must be intentional in discovering the facts, or in other words, the truth, not just passively accepting the opinion of the speaker. 
I encourage you to seek out sources that present facts and to ask thoughtful questions. And in doing so, I think you too will drive the demand for more speech intended to educate instead of intended to indoctrinate. In conclusion, I hope I pers helped persuade you that our shared commitment to the Constitution and to Orthodox Christianity are united in the First Amendment's rights to religious freedom and free speech, and that these liberties serve to help us pursue the truth. I think they are vitally important, especially today, to an informed citizenry, and importantly, to the survival of our republic. Thus, let us all be promoters of truth by being promoters of the rights enshrined by the founders in the First Amendment. Thank you. to the students today. I think that was really important. We have some time for questions, and I would encourage you to ask questions, uh, either about the content of Ms. Mizell's uh, lecture, or maybe about her time at the Supreme Court or law school. I think you'd probably be willing to answer any of those questions. Absolutely. Great. Great. Any um, please wait until I get to you with the microphone. This is being recorded, so we want to make sure that we record uh, both your questions and as well as her answers. And before I forget, those of you who are in Dr. Nykirk's uh, poli 352 class, uh, when we leave, he wants you to meet him over here at this round table where you can sign uh, that you are here. All right, so questions. Hi, um, so how do you think that we as college students should approach big tech like media companies who are silencing one one half of the argument and that are just like completely like censoring it. How do you think that we should approach that? Uh, that is a very hard question because you obviously have to use Google and whatnot, you know, to to survive. Um, um, although we were talking about this last night, um, I do have a, I have a few thoughts. Um, the first is, I, you need Google to do your, or your work. Do you need Facebook? Um, I think you should ask yourself some serious questions about social media that is less likely to um, be informative and more likely to be a distraction. Um, I just I shared with um, the professors last night. Um, I found that Facebook, Instagram, um, I even got off LinkedIn for a little bit, but I'm back on that because you do need that for uh, finding a job, which is what I was doing last month. Um, I, I don't think they're necessary to our life. They're helpful, um, and I realize that college students, especially if you, like, it's difficult to feel like you could live without them, but I would, I would just ask yourself, seriously, do I need these influences in my life? How much of my time is devoted to responding to them? Um, when I look at them, am I doing it in a God-honoring way. Um, because if you aren't part of those different social media sites, I mean, that's the demand for them, is you, the consumer. Um, so I think that's one way. Um, the other way, I think, is to seek out sources that maybe are not in those kind of main big tech groups um, for your information. That requires more work. Um, it requires more like initiative to find those sources. But they do exist. There are. Um, media and news articles, blogs that are um, not one-sided or trying to silence the, the political opponent or whatnot. And I think, the, again, your demand for using them will increase their availability. So I think it's kind of a two-front prong. Um, 
as a college student. Now, I think there's opportunities for people um, in different professions to like call out those 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 sources that are you know silencing one viewpoint or like not putting up advertisements from a particular side. And I think that is happening. If you look at um, hearings on the Hill, that's coming to light. And I think that's all very good. Um, but as a practical matter, I would say college student, your demand for what you consume is the best immediate thing you can do. Um, Tagging on that end of that question, maybe for the sake of students, could you maybe discuss how the First Amendment starts Congress shall make a law and help us the difference between public and private entities? So oh, sure. Understand the First Amendment rights between the two. Right. Um, so uh, the First Amendment um, is designed to prevent the federal government from doing certain actions. Um, thus, Congress shall make no law. Um, it's been implied by the, or it's, the court has interpreted the 14th Amendment as including that against the state, so now it's all government. Um, but that's true. It doesn't apply to private citizens. Um, and so tech companies are not con like violating your constitutional rights unless it's a public forum. Um, when they only put forth one message, which is why I think it's very important the like demand from the citizens about what they want to hear is what drives it. That's true with media. Um, I mean, there's a, if people didn't read the New York Times, they wouldn't keep selling newspapers, right? So like they, they're allowed to put their view, it's a private citizen's view or a private company's view out um, in, so no, there's no constitutional right against like the media um, doing that. It's a it's to prevent the government from mandating what views and content is in the public square. But like I said, it comes back to um, what the citizens are like willing to call out. So when you see factual inaccuracies, are members of the public willing to say that's not true? That was a false news article based on false facts, and you knew it. Like that that I think is something that you can do, um, especially. I mean, here's the, the flip side, I think, of technology, is it's much easier as a consumer to do that today, right? Like, and, and, and to have other members of the public, you know, um, in a way that, you know, 100 years ago, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know if your printed newspaper was based off of lie or the truth. Like, you just wouldn't be able to fact check it, but now um, there's a lot more resources available to you to do that. I also should say, too, I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, companies or organizations, um, media sh sh should not be allowed to have their opinions. I'm not of that view. Like you're allowed, you you are. You're entitled. Everyone's entitled to their view. Um, but I think when we start accepting other people's views without asking what the facts they're based on, what are the worldview assumptions built into the position, that is where I think we kind of get led astray. Um, and what also keeps people from being honest is when they're you know having to be critiqued. I can also talk about your little C calling. We talked about that a lot at Covenant. Uh, um, um, how do you keep the integrity of what the Constitution states when interpretation depends solely on the Supreme Court Justice's philosophy of government? I'm sorry, can you start get the, the early part of your question again? Uh, how do you keep the integrity of what the Constitution states when interpretation depends solely on the Supreme Court Justice's philosophy of government? So like liberal versus conservative and how they so how does the radical. yeah how how does the institution keep its integrity or how do the American people feel like that the court is um, 
doing? Uh, which perspective are you asking me? Sorry. And how do, I guess the Supreme Court as a whole, keep the integrity of the Constitution because of the different beliefs of conservative yeah. and liberals? Okay. Um, okay, so I, I think that is a struggle in terms of um, there are two primary camps of jurisprudence on the court of like how you approach the law, what the purpose of a judge is, and thus what the purpose of us interpreting this document is. Um, and you see that a lot in the opinions. Like it's, 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 not, it's like almost like they're talking past each other. I clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas, who is um, very devoutly an originalist, textualist, and believes the job of a judge is to um, say what the words originally meant to the people who ratified it, and my personal preferences you know, do not come into play in that. Um, Justice Breyer is of the opposite view, so he would think that we should be trying to get the correct answer from our perspective as like what the just answer is, the fair answer is, um, and the words maybe have evolved in their meaning to our modern day applicability. So I think you see this tension throughout all their opinions um, because they're just starting from different premises as to their job. Um, from the American citizen's perspective, um, I think it's very important to understand what that means for your constitution, because this is your document. This is like the rights you've given to the federal government to govern you. You are the sovereign. Um, and Article Three judges, um, it's my opinion that they are to be more of the objective, what did you as the people mean, whether it's the constitution or what did your representatives in Congress mean with the words, that they are neutral arbiters to just tell you what the law is. Um, and I think that is true, you know, from a historical perspective, that was what judges were supposed to be doing um, in England. And I also think under our, our constitutional structure, that's what they were designed to do. So um, I think the only way to, you're not gonna resolve the, you can't change the justices' opinions, right, on how they, they view the law. Um, and you have a whole generation, especially before textualism became a like popular idea, and that really didn't come to the forefront until like Justice Scalia joined the court. Um, so you have a whole generation of lawyers who spent their entire careers trying to come up with arguments um, about what the, the best like policy is or this balancing factor test of like produce the best results. And I think the only way you change that is um, through like education of what a jo judge's job is. And I do think that's happened in the last like several decades as a result of like Justice Scalia's and Justice Rehnquist, um, my former boss, Justice Thomas's uh, view. Um, but in terms of, you're not, you're, like I said, you're not gonna be able to change the justices' perspective on it. Um, I think you can just change the American people's understanding of what the judges that are being appointed to the bench are supposed to be doing. Uh, the um, judges who were the majority in the Smith case seemed unusual given some of their writings there are also those who are still there or who wrote on it, the ones who seem to have taken the opposite side in some of the major religious liberty cases in the last few years. Is it your sense that those justices have changed their mind about Smith? Or do they somehow see the Obamacare cases as fitting into the Smith framework? So I think we are officially on a court now. There's nobody left who was on the Smith, because Justice Scalia authored Smith, and then Justice Thomas came on and he's the oldest member of the court. So we, 
for the first time, um, have a completely new Supreme Court. Um, I think Smith was contentious when it was decided because it was overruling um, the earlier precedent. Um, and I think, uh, well, Justice Scalia would get very upset if he questioned Smith. So he obviously agreed with that. He like, gave his reasons in um, uh, later cases. Um, I do think that the current justices are open to reconsidering whether Smith is correctly decided, um, and I'm not revealing any confidences. Last year, there uh, was a dissent from a denial, or maybe, maybe it was incurring for about, it, it, a short opinion, um, where four of the current members of the court basically said we're open, we're, we'd be interested in hearing Smith again, uh, whether it was correct as a original matter. So I don't know if so much of it's they've changed their minds since none of them were on the court with Smith, um, or if they're just willing to like really look at it from a, an originalist perspective. I mean, the four that joined it were all avowedly originalists. So um, you know, I assume they'd be taking that approach when they when they um, address it. And I mean, so uh, Justice Thomas has probably written the most on like original meanings and taking positions that are seemingly um, to the extreme from an originalist perspective, and he's never written on this before. So um, I don't think there's like a uh, orthodox view out there as to whether Smith is um, correctly decided or not. In fact, in kind of the more and I mean this in a jurisprudential sense, conservative side of like the legal world, this is a very, I mean, I'm, I'm very sincere when I think it's the most robust, pressing religious liberty question of the day. And um, uh, believers, uh, members of faiths that, um, you know, there would be maybe potentially advantageous reasons to think Smith was incorrect, have very different views as to what as an original matter is the correct answer here, because there's just not a lot to, to go on. Um, I would say if you're interested in this debate, Professor um, Philip Hamburger and Michael McConnell are kind of the two leading academics on opposite views, um, and both are very well respected, and um, their writings are quite interesting on it. I think there was a question So I think that's a great question, um, and I think that's one of the truths we as Christians um, have to put in the public square, which is this idea that relativism, postmodernism, every everyone's truth is their truth, is not true. <laughs> that's like fundamentally false, and we have good reasons for saying that. So will it survive? Um, no, I don't think that our republic will survive if you have 90% of the population that doesn't believe um, that there is ultimately truth to be found. Um, and that we should conform our action to it. So I, I think that's like the most crucial, like, or one of the most crucial questions facing um, our generation. And that's, that's why I think we have to be more vocal um, in, in saying that that's, that's fundamentally false. You cannot have truth for you that's not truth for me. That like conflates the whole rule of law. <laughs> Either we all follow it or we don't because it's true or we don't. But um, I think there's big problems with that. So one more question. Um, so like in a world where the government's partnering with big tech companies to form initiatives against like hate speech or fake news or selling our information to the government like Amazon and Facebook, do you think there's going to be a time when it's going to be necessary to question whether or not the Constitution 
is actually protecting our rights from just the, the outsourcing of their violation to private companies? Um, good, good question. Um, it hasn't come up as much before the court in the First Amendment context, but it has come up quite, quite frequently in the Fourth Amendment um, about search and seizure. Last year, the Carpenter case about the cell, uh, cell phone tower service data information and whether you give it to a third party, whether like then they can give it to the government and like you have no Fourth Amendment rights um, against the government searching it. So I think those will you know kind of bleed into each other. Um, uh, so I do think that question is is going to come up. Um, I I will say there are a few misconceptions um, out there. Um, I, I read some, I think it was Brookings Institute uh, statistics um, that most college students think hate speech is banned by like the First Amendment. It's actually not, um, or like that certain responses to to um, views that you don't like or speakers you don't like are permissive. Um, and they're not. Um, so I think some of that is like education of like this idea that all hate speech, like who decides what is hateful or offensive, um, what's offensive to you might not be offensive to someone else. Um, I, I mean, something as neutral as I don't like the weather could be offensive because you want, you know, like there, that's like a in you can't draw, draw that line. So I think that's that's going to be difficult. Um, and you see this with. I don't, I'm not as familiar with companies, um, like internal processes, but you see it on college campuses with the like speech codes where you can't say anything that makes people feel uncomfortable, even though in my mind, like the point of a university education is to confront uncomfortable ideas and rebut them. Um, so I, I do think, to answer your question, yes, I think that at some point this question will come up and it has come up in the Fourth Amendment context and I imagine it will come up more in the, in the First Amendment context. Um, and I, I don't have a solution for, like, I, I use Gmail, so Google has my stuff, and like, you have to be able to like use technology to function. I don't have a good like way of saying like, I'm not saying retreat and don't be engaged in society today. I I, um, I just think you could be more just as, as it is citizens. We could be discerning in what we choose to engage in and spend our time in and get access to. Um, so. Please join me in thanking Ms. Myself for being with us today.